So we're back in 1 Corinthians this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you turn there with me. Uh, when I was growing up, there were, uh, I had two favorite sports. I loved uh, hockey and baseball. In hockey, I always wanted to play center because I wanted to be in the middle of the action all the time. In baseball, I wanted to pitch because I wanted my hand on the ball in every play. I wanted to be right in the center. But in baseball, if I wasn't pitching because you can't pitch every game, I would play third base. Before I could learn how to enjoy playing third base, I had to learn how to field ground balls, right? So I learned that, you know, you got to get really low and you got to get your glove on the ground. Because if you don't have your glove on the ground, there are a lot of balls that are just going to go straight through your legs and that's embarrassing. In the middle of the game, you don't want to have that happen. So you got to get your glove on the ground. The other thing is that you got to keep your head up and keep your eye focused on the ball, which when you're first learning to field ground balls, that's a little bit difficult because there's this this natural instinct of self-preservation that when a hard ball is flying at your body, you just want to turn away, right? You kind of want to get out of the way. And so you turn and you take your eye off of the ball. And you know what happens when you take your eye off the ball? You get hit by the ball, right? So I got hit many times in the chest and in the shins and in the face because I turned away rather than keeping my eye on the ball, which is a great principle in life. If you want to accomplish anything, you have to remain focused. You have to keep your eye on the ball. In fact, there are a lot of studies that have come out recently that demonstrate that success in life is most strongly correlated not to intelligence. Sorry, all of you National Merit Scholars out there, okay? Success in life is not most strongly correlated to intelligence, but to focus And the ability to stay focused on a single thing for a long period of time. Focus. Problem in the Corinthian church is that they had lost focus. They had taken their eyes off of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now there were a lot of issues and problems in the church in Corinth. But the root of it was that they had taken their eyes off of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul actually begins this letter and ends the letter talking about the gospel. Trying to get their eyes back on the gospel. Let's read together 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Get your eyes back on the gospel. Lots of problems in the Corinthian church. The first one that Paul addresses is the problem of division. Because if he can solve the problem of division, then together they can address all the rest of their problems. If he can get them reunified around this central and most powerful truth in their lives that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, then together they can address all of the different issues within their church. Right now, they are divided. Why? Well, because they're being swept along by the culture, right? They have brought 
their pagan non-Christian culture into the church. It's a culture, remember, that exalts status. It's important who you know, who you are aligned with. And so these house churches throughout the city have become divided. Some are saying, hey, we're of Paul. He planted the church in Corinth. We're of Paul. Oh yeah, well, we're of Apollos. He's really a better preacher. He's a lot more eloquent than Paul. Yeah, well, we're of Cephas. He was part of the original three. Oh yeah, we're Jesus. <laughs> well, conversation's over, right? Played the Jesus card. They're all divided. They are all fractured. Paul says, look, Christ didn't send me to do anything else but to preach the gospel so that you could be unified around the message and the powerful life-transforming truth of the gospel. And we see division in the church today, don't we? So we've taken our eyes off of the gospel. We see theological division, often over non-essential things, right? There are Arminians and Calvinists and people who are somewhere in between. That's us. We just don't have a good label for us yet, so we're, we're all divided, right? There's a pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath. You speak in tongues or you don't speak in tongues, right? All sorts and forms of theological division, Division over worship. Well, I like hymns. I like praise. I like a blended service. The denominations. I'm Baptist. I'm Presbyterian. I'm Methodist. I'm non-denominational. And there's so many of us now, we are kind of a denomination, right? The non-denominational denomination. That's who we are, right? (laughs) We're divided. Are you church or parachurch? Are you really plugged into the church? Are you NAVS or Crusade or IV? Are you in a Christian sorority or fraternity? We, We divide along all kinds of different divisions. And it's not that it's wrong to worship with a particular group of people. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that, right? No single group can reach the entire campus or the entire community or the world alone. And there probably isn't a building large enough in Bryan College Station for all the believers in Bryan College Station to actually worship under one roof. So it's not necessarily bad that we worship together in in groups. We train ourselves to share our faith together in groups. So that's not necessarily bad. What's bad is when we begin to divide along the lines of non-essential issues and when there is friction between these groups because of non-essential issues and we begin to disagree in a very disagreeable way and become competitive with one another then the witness of the one message of the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes less powerful, less potent in the community. And that's what's really stirring Paul up. Years ago, John Wesley was very concerned about division in the church and denominations arising and denominations fighting within one another. And he said he had a dream one night. And in his dream, he was transported to the gates of hell. And there at the gates of hell, he had a conversation and he asked, he said, are, are there any Baptists here? And the answer was, was yes, we have Baptists here. Oh, really, are there any Methodists here? Yes, there are Methodists. Are there any Presbyterians here? Yes, there are. Are there any Episcopalians here? Yes, there are. And Wesley was shocked. He was stunned. And then in his dream, he was transported to the gates of heaven. And he said, are there any, are there any Baptists here? No. Are there any Methodists here? No. Any Episcopalians? No. Any Presbyterians? No. He said, well, who is here then? Who who populates heaven? And the answer was Christians. 
Just Christians. Only Christians. Right? And he didn't ask the question about non-denominational Bible church people because those didn't exist yet, right? Otherwise, he would have gotten the same answers. Just Christians. Okay? Just those who believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. That is the focus, the central unifying truth of our personal lives and as the body of Christ together. Okay. Read with me chapter 1, again, verse 17. Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul says the cross of Christ unifies believers, but the cross of Christ also divides all of humanity. Before Paul met Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, he divided all of humanity into two groups. There were Jews and non-Jews. There were the people of God and people who were not the people of God. Then after he met Jesus, he realized, no, a new age has come and all of humanity is once again divided into two groups and that's those who believe in Jesus and those who do not believe in Jesus. And that is the only significant division among people. Right. Christians divide amongst one another. The world divides. And the world divides along all kinds of ridiculous, silly lines, right? Even within your own home sometimes. Right. Do you like cats? We're not like cats, right? Cats are a great dividing line sometimes within families. Or small dogs that can sit on your lap. You like small dogs? You don't like small dogs, right? Justin Bieber. Families divide. You like Justin Bieber or not? Or, or broccoli, right? I mean, just, we'll find anything and everything to divide over, right? Paul says, no, there's only one thing that should divide humanity. It's really only one significant thing, and that is Jesus. Hey, Jesus is, is a, a, a crisis figure. He's a, he is a fork in the road for every person. Jesus even said this of himself. Luke chapter 12, he said, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. She said, I didn't come to grant peace on earth. I did come to grant peace between you and God. I came to cause reconciliation in that relationship. And you who share that reconciliation, there will be peace among you. But I came to actually divide households. Those who believe Jesus and those who do not believe Jesus. I came to grant that division. That is the dividing line of all of humanity. So my question for us this morning is, Why is it so clear to us that the gospel is true, but so seemingly impossible for others to believe and to understand? Read with me in verse 19, chapter 1. Paul says, it stands written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its own wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Paul says, let's remember that from the very beginning, God said to humanity, I will save you my way, not your way. I am who I am. 
And I will rescue you, but I will rescue you my way, not your way. Not according to what you may expect or what you may demand, but just my way. And so when people hear the message of the gospel, they react. They either believe or they disbelieve in the gospel. Why is that? Paul gives two illustrations of two types of humanity. Verse 22. He says, For indeed Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles humanity. Paul says, let me give you two illustrations. First, uh, the Jew. The Jew hears the gospel and he says, where's the power in that? This is a stumbling block. This is like a a rock set in the middle of the road that I trip over. I can't get over it. I can't step past that. Where's the power in a crucified Messiah? That makes no sense whatsoever. Messiah is anointed one. Messiah is king. King conquers. King exercises power. That's the way God has always acted in our history. Remember the Exodus? When we were slaves and God came and saved us, delivered us, rescued us out of Egypt, he did it with power. He did it with strength. He, he put the Egyptian nation to shame with his power. So show us the power. When Jesus was walking around on earth and people began to say, is he the Messiah? Could he be the Messiah? The Jews said, show us the power. Jesus fed 5,000. They said, show us, show us some power. <laughs> he fed 4,000. They said, show us some power. Raise people from the dead. No, we want to see power. There's no power in any of that. So they put him on the cross and they said, if you're really the son of God and you're the Messiah, show us some power. Get down off the cross. That's the kind of, we need to see power. Because we can't understand this whole concept of the king who loses, the king who conquers. No, if we align ourselves with, with Jesus as Messiah, that is to relinquish everything about our Jewishness, all of our hope that our Messiah will come back and crush and conquer our enemies and establish his kingdom on earth, and we will be the powerful ones. That makes no sense whatsoever. But I want you to remember all the way back in the prophets where God promised that he would send deliverance. There's a king called Ahaz. He was a a wicked king and he was about to be attacked by the Assyrians and so he looked for power. He tried to make a foreign alliance. He's looking at Egypt. Maybe Egypt could help. Maybe Israel could help. Maybe who's the most powerful nation on earth that can help us and rescue us? And Isaiah came to Ahaz and he said, no, God's going to rescue you and he's going to do it his way and his time. Go ahead, ask, ask God for a sign, Ahaz. Ahaz, no, 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 I won't ask God for a sign. I won't put God to the test. And Isaiah says, well, he's going to give you a sign anyway. But it's not going to be the kind of sign you're expecting. The sign of your deliverance is going to be a baby. Behold, a virgin will give birth to a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. God with us. The demonstration of the power of God in your presence is going to be a baby. And Ahaz says, that's not what I was looking for. (laughs) I was looking for a big army. But God delivers in ways that we do not expect. The Jew says, where's the power? Crucified Messiah, that is a contradiction in terms. Gentile says, where is the wisdom? Remember, the Greeks introduced the world to philosophy. The love of wisdom logic and reason, 
rhetoric, persuasive speech that lays out the best argument and convinces. A man being raised from the dead doesn't make sense. That's not reasonable. Why? Because it's never happened before. We can't, we can't accept a man being raised, a man dying and then being raised out of the grave. That doesn't make sense. So you recall that right before Paul first went to Corinth, he was in Athens. And when he was in Athens, he was preaching the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus. And we started talking about resurrection. The Athenians thought he was talking about a new God named resurrection. And when they finally realized, no, he's not talking about a God named resurrection. He's talking about resurrection. He's talking about people coming to life again. And then they shouted him down. That is unbelievable reasonable. Men and women, that's really the philosophical culture in which we have been raised, is it not? We value reason. We value logic. It needs to make sense to us, particularly in an academic community, right? Where's the intellect? Where's the education? I've known professors who have stopped climbing the ladder of success within their career because they have stood for the ridiculous gospel of Jesus Christ, particularly in the sciences. They have said, I believe in a man who lived and died and was raised again 2,000 years ago. I believe in him. I believe that his death and his burial and resurrection is true. It actually happened. And that that changes the course of history and changes my life. I believe in that. And they're ridiculed. Students, I expect that sometime during your college career, you'll have to stand for Jesus Christ or not. You'll be challenged. Will you stand uh, amidst your friends or will you stand in the face of a professor and say, I believe in what I cannot see. I believe in the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus. I believe that the Bible is true. I believe it's the word of God. And you will have to stand or not stand for Jesus. If you stand for Jesus, you will be ridiculed. The world will say, what a fool. You're a fool for Christ. Or others in your world may say, where's the grace? How how can you call me a sinner? You're saying you're better than I am? This message you are telling me is so judgmental. It can't be true. Where's the tolerance? No, no, no. All views are equally valid. How can you say that this one man is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him? No, you can believe anything, and you can believe everything, but you can't believe one thing, and only one thing. That is intolerant. Where's the effort? We believe in effort. We believe in making a name for ourselves. We believe in what we can accomplish. After all, it says in your own Bible, God helps those who help themselves, right? It's just a little bit difficult to find that verse. It seems to say something more like God helps the broken and the needy and the vulnerable who recognize that they cannot help themselves. That's the gospel. So again, I ask you, why is it so obvious to us but so seemingly impossible for others to believe? I want you to look at me in chapter 2 and verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. Paul says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, 
because they're spiritually discerned. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, and he cannot accept the Spirit of God. He cannot accept these things because he doesn't possess the Spirit of God, so he can't know the things that God has revealed to humanity. If I can put it more simply, he will not, and so he cannot. He will not, and so he cannot. Turn back with me to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They push it down. Because that which is known about God is actually evident within them or among them because God made it evident to them specifically in creation. Because since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Because even though they know God, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But as a result... They became futile in their speculations and their reasonings, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to this hardness because they said, no, we will not. Therefore, they cannot. We will not. We will not take God as God has revealed himself to be. Therefore, their hearts got harder and harder and harder, and God gave them over to the hardness of heart. Their own sin caused blindness within them. There's a second factor. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, Also the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan can't grab a person against that person's will and drag that person who wants to believe, really tries to choose to believe, but Satan grabs that person and drags them into hell. Satan doesn't have the power to do that. What Satan has the power to do is he can watch and he studied humanity for thousands of years and when he sees a heart beginning to harden itself against God, he steps in, he takes advantage of that hardness and he begins to pour blindness upon that person. Here we have, in a sense, um, the, the intersection of a mystery. Does, does God choose? Does God elect? Ephesians chapter 1, very clearly he does. Before the foundations of the world, based on his sovereign choice, not based upon man who wills or man who chooses. That's the sovereignty of God. That's his authority and his power. But is every man and every woman responsible for responding to what God has revealed to him or to her? Absolutely. This is the intersection of the mystery, the authority and the power and the foreknowledge of God and the responsibility of man. And the Bible doesn't pull these things apart and explain how they untether. And God doesn't say, hey, you, you people, what you are responsible for, your great calling in life is to, is to pull these things apart and really understand this intersection of the mystery of my eternal nature and my foreknowledge and power and your responsibility. God doesn't say that's your calling, especially you, you Bible church people who really want to dig deep in the word and think you understand it all. That's not your calling. Your calling is to share the gospel. That's your calling. Your calling is not to unravel all of these mysteries because all I show you is the human side. All you get to see is the the hardness or the softness of a heart. 
And so your calling is to share the gospel. Leave the mystery to me. Paul said to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. And so as you do the work of an evangelist, you remember this is not merely an intellectual exercise. Certainly we should master certain arguments that help break down intellectual barriers to the gospel, but fundamentally it is a matter of the human heart and its receptivity to God. So you pray and you pray and you pray and you pray for your neighbors and your friends and your family members who don't know Jesus and you speak the truth through the the, the power of the word of God, you remind them over and over and over again of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because men and women, that is our calling. That's our calling. A few years ago, I I stumbled across a video, this little self-made video by uh, Penn Gillette. You've probably uh, seen Penn and Teller before. They're magicians and comedians. uh, Really, really talented guys. Penn Gillette is a, a confirmed atheist. To this day, he's a confirmed atheist. But he tells a story about uh, a time when after one of his shows, a man came up to him. He said the man was very complimentary about the show. He was, he was very, very kind and very gracious. And after he had complimented Penn on the show, he pulled out a small pocket Gideon New Testament. And he said, I just want you to have this because I believe this is true. I believe that Jesus died to pay for your sins. It's true. You know, Pendulette, confirmed atheist, didn't get angry at the man. He wasn't resentful. He said, you know, this man was very gracious. He was very kind. And I actually really respected him because he believed it and he cared enough about me and my eternal destiny to share it with me. And I, don't, I still don't believe what he said, but I respect him for saying it. I want, I want you to hear briefly in Penn's own words. Can you play that video for us? And I've always said, you know, that I I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh... How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important. I love that line. If I see a truck is barreling down upon you, at some point in time, I just tackle you, Right? I find, that, I find that little clip very convicting. It says, how much must you hate a person to not share the gospel with that person? How can you care so much more about the socially awkward nature of the conversation? How can you care more about that than this person's eternal destiny? And that is from an atheist. Men and women, this is our calling as the body of Christ. And you see, Paul was so deeply concerned about division in the church in Corinth because since there was division and they're fighting with one another, they're not sharing the gospel. And when they do try to share the gospel, it's not a powerful message because the people who listen don't see any transformation in the community. They're just like us. They fight with one another. They don't forgive one another. They're disunified over trivial things. 
and there's no power to their witness. So Paul's deep concern is that they would once again refocus their attention around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now Paul will acknowledge there are two reasons why the church can and should be divided. The first is unrepentant sin. A believer is in sin and will not repent from that sin, then the church is going to have to create some separation. We'll talk about that later in the semester. The second reason is when the church distorts the gospel and gets the gospel wrong, then someone has to step in and get the gospel right. He talks about this in the book of Galatians. This is why he wrote the book of Galatians. He said, there are some among you who are disturbing you. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Man, Paul can't find stronger language. And in fact, later on in chapter 2, he will recount a story of Peter in Antioch who begins to separate himself from some Gentile believers and his separation is causing a distortion in the gospel. People are beginning to think again that they somehow have to earn eternal life. And so in front of the entire group, the apostle Paul dresses down the apostle Peter and creates a, he creates a scene. Why? Because the gospel is distorted. So if the gospel is so very important... Men and women, we better get it right. And so let's look at the gospel together. Read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23. Paul says, We preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul says the gospel reveals three things. First, it reveals wisdom from God. The gospel reveals wisdom from God. Remember, mankind has two major problems, and they're interrelated. The problem of sin and the consequence of sin, which is death. That is mankind's greatest problem. It would seem that God also has a problem. Because he is absolutely holy and just and righteous, he must punish sin and the wages of sin is death. But he also loves us and doesn't want us to die. So how can God be just and punish sin and yet give us life and not crush us and destroy us? The answer is the cross. Because in the cross of Christ, God judges our sin in Jesus So all of his wrath is poured out upon Jesus and Jesus is an acceptable sacrifice for your sin and my sin and every sin that's ever been committed. That is the justice of God is satisfied and yet God can still turn around since he has punished our sin in a substitute Jesus and offer us eternal life out of his love because the price has been paid. And so in the cross, there's an intersection, a perfect intersection of the justice of God and the love of God, and that is the wisdom of God, and it's brilliant. All sins for all people for all time satisfied in one event, the death of Jesus Christ. Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous Jesus for the unrighteous us that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, crucified, but made alive in the spirit, resurrected. 
Or as it says in the book of Hebrews, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, literally once and for all. How wise, how brilliant, how efficient is that? Jesus didn't have to suffer often for each generation or each person, but he suffered and died once for every man and every woman and every child, for all of their sins, for all of time, one death, one burial, one resurrection. That is the wisdom of God. Our greatest problem solved in one event. Gospel reveals also the power from God. I happen to be kind of a news junkie. I love to read the news. I get up in the morning. Uh, I read my Bible, I read the news. You know, I try and keep a, a sense of what's going on in the world. Um, but I admit sometimes I just get so depressed and discouraged that I'll literally, I'll, you know, I'll go back through my iPad and I, I delete all of my news apps. You know, get rid of CNN and get rid of Fox News and get rid of BBC. I just, get, I just delete them all because I just can't read these for a while because I just can't hear any more about, you know, recession in Europe or abject poverty in Africa or the, the outbreak of, of Ebola and wars everywhere and, and beheading. I just go, I, I can't anymore. And I can't listen anymore to politicians' superficial solutions to these deep-rooted problems. I just can't listen any longer. Centuries ago, uh, Jeremiah decried the same thing because the prophets were offering these superficial solutions. And and, and God spoke through Jeremiah and he said, these people are are offering a, a superficial healing to the wound of my people, which is deep. They are saying shalom, shalom, that is peace, prosperity. It's all good. It's all good. We can work it out. When there is no shalom, there is no peace. Our problem, men and women, is death. It is sin. It is an absolute broken, self-centered heart in each and every person that's born on this earth. And no amount of education, science, or technology can fix that problem. That's the root of the problem. The cross demonstrates the power of God in that it goes right at the root of the problem of sin and death. Read with me in chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, the end of verse 44. 1 Corinthians 15, the end of verse 44. Paul writes, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The one and the only solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know why it works? It works simply because it's true. That's why it works. It's true. Turn back to the beginning of chapter 15, verse 3. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. Remember, he begins the book of 1 Corinthians with the gospel. Let's go back to the gospel. Let's focus on the gospel. He ends the book of 1 Corinthians with the gospel. And he says, hey, I delivered to you as of absolute first importance. This is your focal point. This is the truth around which you should build your life and which will bring order to your life, which will bring power and transformation to your life. It will give you forgiveness of sins. It will give you eternal life. It will allow you to take your eyes off of yourself and give to others because you're rich in Christ. This is first importance. 
And here it is, Paul says, let me remind you how simple it is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and then he kept appearing over and over again. Paul says it's so simple. The message is so simple. Jesus died. He really died. It happened in history. But he didn't die as a criminal. He died as a substitute for our sins. There was a purpose in his death. It wasn't accidental. God didn't lose control and power for a moment and his son was crucified. Nor were the Romans right in their condemnation of him that he was a rebel against the authority of Rome. Nor were the Jews right that he was a blasphemer. No, he was the son of God and he died on purpose to pay for your sins. And he was actually buried. He went into the grave. He, he, he went into the grave actually three days. So you'd know he was dead, dead. But he didn't stay there. The grave couldn't hold him. He was raised from the dead. And all of this happened consistently with the scriptures and God's plan. And then Jesus went around and he showed himself to people so that they would have confirmation, affirmation. This really happened. Touch my sides. Look at my wrists. Give me a piece of fish. It's me. It's me. Paul says, that's the gospel. That's that's the historical event. That's the information of the gospel. That's the data of the gospel. But a response is required. There are billions of people on earth who know the story of the gospel, but they have never said yes to the gospel. They know the, the basic idea that Jesus died and he was buried and he rose from the dead. But they have never said, but but I believe. So God offers an invitation. It's the same invitation for absolutely every person. Here's the gospel. Now believe. It's recorded in the book of Acts chapter 16. The Philippian jailer said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas answered with one voice. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. This applies to you. This applies to your household. It is the same for every man and woman and child. Just believe. Just say to God, yes. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe. I encourage you, if you have never said to God, I believe. Maybe you've been raised in the church your whole life and you've heard that message of the gospel before but you've never appropriated it for yourself. You've never taken it in for yourself. This morning would be a perfect moment for that to happen. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, I want to challenge you to share the gospel. Church, that's why we're here. That's why we're here. Pray that God would give you boldness, courage, clarity. This week, I want you to pick out one person that you will pray for, a friend or a family member or a neighbor that doesn't know Jesus, that you will pray for this week and you will ask God to give you an opportunity to share the gospel with that person this week or next. That is why God has left the church on the earth. Not to be divided, not to be fractured over inconsequential things, but to be unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ in our own personal lives, in our community lives. The one message, the one hope for the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we close, I'd like for you to take just a few moments silently before God and ask God to lay that person on your heart and mind. Begin to pray for that person. Or if you haven't made that decision yet, maybe as we we have some moments quiet, 
You'd go before the Lord quiet, silent, and just tell God, I believe, I believe in Jesus. decision for the first time this morning, um, let me encourage you to maybe come up after the service. There'll be some folks standing out front here, talk to you about that decision and, and what that means in your life and where to go next. If you made that decision for the first time, please come, come forward and tell someone. Or maybe you're still struggling and wrestling with some questions. Again, those folks will be up here. They can maybe answer those questions or point you to, point you to the answers or just pray with you through that struggle. Or perhaps God is, is really challenging and convicting your heart to share the gospel with someone and you would like uh, to pray with that person and pray for courage and boldness. Again, people will be available just to pray with you. For each of us, I, 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 want, I want to exhort us and encourage us to remember that the gospel is it's a singular truth that is the hope of the world. Let's not take our eyes off the gospel. As Christians, we don't outgrow the gospel. Father, I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank you that it gives us hope. The debt of our sin has been removed and we have life that lasts forever. I pray, Father, that we would never, ever take our eyes off of the gospel of Jesus Christ, your son, in whom we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ.